Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, Episode 16. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'll be your host today. And today we are talking about ethnography with African descendant communities. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge the Nuch, or Ute peoples, on whose treaty land I'm recording today, as well as the other tribes with ancestral and cultural connections to this land. So today we have Dr. Antoinette Jackson on the show. Dr. Jackson is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of South Florida and the director of the University of South Florida Heritage Research Lab. She received her PhD in anthropology from the University of Florida, her MBA from Xavier University, and a BA in computer and information science from Ohio State University, where she also was an all-American 100-meter hurdler. From 2012 to 2016, she served as the National Park Service Regional Cultural Anthropologist for the Southeast Region. She is the author of Speaking for the Enslaved Heritage Interpretation at Antebellum Plantation Sites, available through the Rutledge Press, as well as the editor of the Present Past Journal under Ubiquity, Ubiquity Press, hosted by University College London and the University of South Florida. So welcome to the show, Dr. Jackson. Thank you so much, Jessica. I'm so happy to be here. And I, too, want to say thank you and acknowledge the ancestral lands on to which this uh, show is um, being broadcast from. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm I'm so excited to have you on here today um, because, like we, we talked about a little bit before the show, we talk a lot about indigenous groups on this podcast, but not as much uh, about other traditional or descendant groups who also have have connections to the places we work. And there's a lot of misconceptions out there that because of the special status of tribes, um, you know, as, as sovereign nations, that they're the only ones that have traditional cultural properties or that they're the only ones that need to be considered when we're looking at uh, cultural resources or, or heritage. And obviously that's, that's not true. So, I'm really excited to talk to you because obviously you've worked with quite a few other groups um, traditionally, or uh, you've worked with African descendant communities in, in the Southeast and in the Caribbean. And also just because, you know, I'm a, I'm a ethnographer working in cultural resources and heritage, and it's always exciting when I get to have another ethnographer on the show. And um, yeah, so I'm just really excited to have you. I'm happy to be here. I know we've been trying to make this work for a while, so I'm so happy that we finally connected and it's it's looked like it's working. It's working. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, we met last year at the, the SFAAs and you were talking about your Virgin Islands project, which is super interesting. And I definitely want to get into that a little bit later. But to start us out, I, I'm really interested, you know, you started with, uh, let's see, it was computer computer information science 
and then you got um, an MBA, so business, and then into anthropology. So I'm a little curious uh, just what brought you into anthropology. Right. I know that sounds like when people hear that, it, it seems to be quite a journey. But to me, everything is, everything is connected. And so it doesn't seem like it took a stretch for me, but really I was doing um, computer information science, but uh, I got my undergrad degree at Ohio State in that. But when I decided to go into my major, my parents said, I, I, my first love has always been journalism and writing and things hmm. like that. So that was always something I was doing anyways, but my parents were like, you need to do some skill. You need to get yourself a skill in, in, you know, when you come out of college so that you can make sure you get a job, a job that's going to pay you to what you want to, to mm -hmm. sustain. So I decided to go for the computer science degree. And my father is a chem engineer. So um, I thought about chem engineering, but um, I was more compatible and more interested in the computer science uh, aspect. It was more of a challenge to me. And then mm -hmm. after I started doing that, um, working for Lucent Technologies and AT&T, doing that as a computer scientist, I um, understood that there were other people telling the computer scientists what to do. Like the marketing people would come over and say, the customer needs <laughs> X, Y, Z, and we need it by then. And I was just like, why, who are those people? Why? How do they get to tell us like, you know, how to write the programs or what needed to be written and all those kinds of things? So I've decided to go for the MBA because I wanted to be a bridge in that conversation because oftentimes they would tell us things that they didn't understand um, how the process, the process, um, how it would work on our end to get it done. And right. there was communications on both ends. So I wanted to be able to create a, be a bridge and, a, um, and create um, better dialogue. So I got the MBA and was able to, you know, better understand the customer and then translate those kind of needs into um, the programs and other things that needed to be developed. So that was the impetus for doing the MBA. And then um, I was recruited to go for a PhD when I was doing the MBA. People were like, uh, we need, you know, people should go into, uh, maybe you should think about getting a PhD. And when I learned about what that meant, I realized you actually have to have a passion if you're going for a PhD. And <laughs> because it was yeah. a lot a lot of time and plus you know I was gonna I have to you know yeah devote at least a good five years or so of my life so I started looking around and thinking about really what I loved and it was writing travel and when I heard that you know somebody would pay me to read write and travel and research I was like what <laughs> and that was anthropology or any kind of degree sort of like that and I picked anthropology because it covered I can use it. Uh, it could cover all the areas that I was interested in, you know, a little bit of everything in anthropology. Mm -hmm. And so <laughs> I, I went for the anthropology degree and I decided to study the Gullah Geechee community because I had come into contact with them while I was um, traveling at one point and became very fascinated. And in my off spare time, I had already been writing um, small articles and, and doing a little research with that community. And so when I decided for my PhD, that was the, that I already knew that that was the area of the country that I wanted and the people uh, that I wanted to uh, work with. And so um, I, I went into and went forward and got the, uh, went for the PhD. And ever since then, the computer science has been very useful to me and the business aspect, managing grants and, and, um, like I said, being able to talk to, um, you know, connect the business needs to the people needs are always, always out there. So it's been very, it's all integrated to me. It doesn't, I haven't wasted any time on any, any of those areas. Uh, and I use all those skills. 
Yeah, I was just actually, I was just going to ask you that. I was going to say, I would imagine that all of those skills really come in handy anyway with, with this kind of, of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, I mean, I feel like on the ethnography side, you know, the, the archaeologists, they do amazing things with computers. And I feel like we kind of get by a little bit on the, <laughs> the, the ethnography side without uh, doing too much of that. So that's, I mean, it really, it, it really can do really interesting, exciting things when we, when we go that way. So I'm sure it's, right. it's made a big, yeah, impact. Yeah, no, it shows people not to be afraid of technology and, you know, you need to, to, to utilize the technology as you're doing with programs like this, you know, that is all technology uh, based. And so it helps with communication uh, these days. Yeah. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about the the community that you worked with and what you did your dissertation on? Yeah, well, like I said, I, I first became introduced to this community that I had not previously heard about, which I since become you know very um, knowledgeable and, and, and connected to the Gullah Geechee community, and that's located. The, the community is located along the southeast quarter of the U.S from um, probably around St. Augustine, Florida, all the way up to um, uh, North Carolina and maybe um, Wilmington, North Carolina, or a little bit uh, further north than that. And they were descendants of enslaved Africans who worked on the uh, rice plantations. And they were uh, have been uh, able to maintain a lot of uh, their uh, cultural uh, connections and um, religious and artistic practices mainly because of the isolation at one point uh, those islands had from the mainland. So it was a lot of time uh, that those Africans were um, um, pretty much, again, isolated and and lived without having the pressures of um, um, uh, assimilation in in regards to, you know, being um, not able to speak the language or or able to practice the religion that they, uh, the way they want it. in, in recent times, however, after enslavement, that did become an issue because as uh, people be, became, um, uh, those folk left the islands or became more, the uh, bridges were built and things like that, and there was more integration across the, between the islands and the mainland, then people who spoke, it's a very beautiful uh, uh, language, uh, became uh, stigmatized and actually then became, uh, became not, uh, good to speak the language or people tried to hide the fact that they spoke the language or in schools they were not allowed to do it. Uh, and so it was a period of time um, that, that uh, the culture being part of the Gullah Geechee culture and, and speaking that language was um, something that people were almost ashamed of and based basically because of the external pressures. Uh, and now coming full circle um, since uh, the Gullah Geechee community along that Southeast Corridor the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor has became um, made a national heritage area uh, by Congress in the early, I think it was like uh, 2007 or so. Um, it became uh, a national heritage area. So it's one of the largest contiguous land uh, areas that are part of, it covers four states. So it's one, it's quite, quite a, a large region. Uh, and so now it's, celebrated and, and, and recognized and giving, given a lot of stature. And um, the uh, Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission has been charged with, you know, helping to, to bring that um, heritage and history to the forefront, help 
manage and preserve uh, many of the land and many of the architecture and, and all kinds of things to do with the community. So people are now revitalized in terms of, you know, the importance of uh, continuing the language practices and, um, you know, educating the world about um, that culture and the history and the things that they brought to that region of the country, not only expertise in growing rice, but again, all kinds of other things in terms of artistic talents and and skills and um, cooking, cook food ways and everything. It's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, cultural um, integration in that area. Charles, if you know anything about Charleston, South Carolina, St. Helena Island, Buford, uh, Hilton Head, all of that is in the area that I'm talking about, which is Gullah, like one of the central areas of the Gullah Geechee communities. And sometimes to travel through those areas, you may not know it because now you see a lot of golf courses and and a, a lot of development. And that's what uh, the culture is up against because they have have uh, in the contemporary times uh, had a lot of pressures for development uh, and keeping their land has been a, a central issue. Mm-hmm. So that, those are the communities and the people that I first began researching and I was interested in the rice technology because I was interested in what Africans brought in terms of technological skill hmm. to that region. And I had never heard the story in, uh, conveyed that way when I was in, in school. Uh, that, was not the ta- that was not the perspective on that. Yeah. Africans, enslaved Africans, and, um, and anything that I heard. And so that learning that for me was liberating and being able now to tell the stories uh, and talk about this and, and help the, the community, uh, the communities along that corridor also uh, share their own history and heritage in the ways that they want to has been just full circle for me because I myself grew so much by and, and became so more, much more enriched uh, about my own uh, identity. And not that I trace my roots back to that particular area, but just as a ins- person as a descendant of an enslaved African to just know that uh, there are other ways of telling those stories and other things that were going on in those communities that you really don't hear about uh, in the traditional and the mainstream um, educational practices. And that's my charter is to help help get that kind of story and information out to a broader audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what what kind of stories or perspective did that community want to see out there that they, they weren't seeing out there so far? Yeah. One of the things that struck me um, with one of the communities in Mount Pleasant, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, is uh, if you travel in that region, it's just outside of Charleston. And you see all the beautiful um, baskets and everybody that area is known for the beautiful sweet grass baskets that people made and things like that and sell along, used to sell along the highways. But one of the things that I I, uh, was introduced to families there and I visited families. And um, when I came again, I had a a real kind of negative uh, perspective of plantations, which, and I still do, but I'm just saying I, that's (laughs) all I had. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's yes, all I have. Yeah. Not that I have love in terms of what happened there, right? But <laughs> I did not see the people either. You know, my whole thing about just just wipe all this out and just this you know forget about all these things and we don't need to talk about this. Hmm. Uh, perspective yeah. reminded me to even focusing as an as, as now as an ethnographer on people and their stories and their relationship and their connections. And understanding how they, now it wasn't about me, how they 
<laughs> related to their the environment and their place where they lived all these all this time. And I had met people who were descendants of plantations who lived within walking distance, who still went to the plantation that uh, their de- descendants had been enslaved on, people who they can actually name. Right. Um, and I was like, what? And so yeah. they showed me pl- cabins and places that they themselves had lived in. And so I was forced to come to grips with the fact that people were relating to this, not, you know, again, they, on the the macro level, they understood, they, no one, again, had any love for anything that happened there, total exploitation and all those things. But they also right. shared with me, you know, the fact that they're, you know, the family stories, what they, how they learned to uh, uh, cook and what, um, or that their uncles were brick makers or builders or, or, um, you know, how they made the sweetgrass baskets or how, you know, um, they uh, praised and where they went to church and all those kinds of things. So they were telling me stories about home. And I started looking at those places, not only as, you know, a plantation of exploitation, but a place that people called home. Right. And one of the big stories that they told me was that um, typically the narrative was that in that area, that people were sharecroppers. Like after slavery ended, the next thing was all the people went into sharecropping, meaning they they just worked the land for the owner uh, and maybe they would get a plot of land that the owner would give them or or loan to them or uh, lease to them and they would have to to work that. It was still part of the owner's uh, land ownership uh, area, but the Africans and enslaved descendants would work there. Uh, and so sharecropping was just another way to for extended labor contracts with the same mm-hmm. <laughs> owners. And so that was like the narrative that everybody went from descendants of enslaved Af- enslaved Africans to sharecroppers to to doing to the segregation, then the integration, and all that. But but they were telling me that that wasn't their story. That most of the time, those folk who were working on those plantations were not sharecroppers, although that was the label that was given to them by. Uh, historians or people who just came and, and saw what was going on. They saw that the African uh, descendants maybe been living in some of those um, uh, cabins that are on uh, located particularly like on, I was talking about, I'm talking about Sneak Farm Plantation and uh, Boone, uh, Boone, uh, Boone Hill Plantation that those uh, Africans were, they they were staying there during the week, but they owned their own land, their own homes and everything else. So they were getting paid and they were staying in those places and uh, those cabins or on the properties, but they were actually getting paid um, a wage. And so hmm. for whatever reason, it's just, it just was easier to, or people just didn't bother to talk to people <laughs> <laughs> to find out like what was going on. And so, um, and when I checked the, the, the records, uh, a lot of times the records too show that you can only have one choice. You can either be uh, a landowner or, or paid wage laborer or, or, or landowner. Like the, it was, there was no way to capture the complexity of the way people were living in the boxes that people had to check off an either or kind of a thing. And so that right. also also supported the fact that people were, you know, slotted only in one one category or the other when they spanned mm-hmm. multiple categories. Right. And so, um, and then again, people were telling me about the various skill sets they had. And I noticed in the census records on that time, they talked about the same kind of skill sets, but uh, those skill sets were 
not attributed to insula- uh, descendants of enslaved Africans, but although those Africans descendants were doing things like brick makers and coopers, people who made barrels and um, all kinds of skilled labor who were listed, the gardeners and er- er- everything, midwives and, and, and um you know, plantation um, managers and all those kinds of things were listed, but they were usually the credibility for the, the titles were not necessarily associated with enslaved Africans. Although in dialogue and in narrative, you see that all the work <laughs> were actually those were the people who were doing the labor. And so just understanding the laboring titles and giving laboring roles, um, matching those to the actual roles that the census deemed um, the census takers or, or, or the way those, those kinds of re- recordings where people knew who those laborers are by title, I I started matching people's laboring roles that I interviewed with those actual titles that show up in the census and showing that, you know, those those were the same people, who, those were the people doing those roles and that, you know, <laughs> the titles were appropriately uh, should be appropriately connected to those uh, people in those communities. So that was one of the, uh, again, the, the whole thing about sharecroppers was one of the big things that they would talk to me because they wanted to wanted me to tell everybody that that wasn't their 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 uh, situation in that area. Right. Not saying that people weren't sharecroppers other places, but in that their, that particular story, that wasn't their story. Mm-hmm. Right. And they hadn't necessarily, I imagine, gotten the opportunity to to tell their own story prior to that. Right. That's exactly right. Uh, to, you know, sitting down and having somebody talk to, to them and hearing, uh, you know, the stories and the ways that they, um, you know, wanted to be represented or talked about themselves was not there prior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, or if it was there, people didn't use that material in the way that they, um, you know, talked about that community. Because oftentimes I find lots of things are, are in the records, uh, in the, in the um, archival record. If you if you're asking a particular question or looking at it a different in a different way, there it, it's right there. <laughs> but it depends on who wants to tell the story and how they how they what they want to what they want to share. Right. Right. Okay. So we're actually at our first break. So we will be back here in a moment. This network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, and we are back. Okay, so one thing that I'm really curious about, since I heard you already talk about the, the Virgin Islands project, is how that differed from the experience that you're talking about for your for your dissertation work. So first, if you could talk about just what that project was and, and give everyone else a little bit of an overview. And second, maybe if you could talk a little bit about how they wanted to be represented and, and whether that was similar or different from your your dissertation community. Yes. 
Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good comparative uh, good way to, to 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 talk about it. Look at my work in a, in a different way. So, the Virgin U.S. Virgin Islands uh, project was took place in Saint John and uh, Saint Thomas Island uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it was uh, initiated by the U.S. Virgin Islands National Park, which is located on Saint John Island. And what they wanted, the park initiated um, this ethnographic overview and assessment study, and they wanted to understand uh, the community uh, that was surrounding or in relation to the park and and get a better understanding of who they were, uh, what uh, some of their concerns were, or, or better ways to perhaps relate to the communities with the park. So it was driven from a totally from an applied perspective as opposed to my research, which was driven from my own, uh, it started out from my own interest in what was going on in these uh, uh rice plantation communities and or in 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 my own kind of research questions and then um broadening from there this one was definitely driven by the park service uh, need to figure out uh, the communities that they were in association with and um this one was very difficult <laughs> project and who would think the virgin islands would be difficult so i, went, I know right <laughs> it was beautiful gorgeous love being down there. <laughs> as pretty as any picture you ever saw it was, and that's another. That's going to bring me to my my recent uh, issue uh, concerns now. Uh, so my work took place around uh, what was like 2015, 2016, around in there. I went down to U.S. Virgin Islands, spent time with the community, and what the community wanted and what the park wanted were somewhat different. I told you. <laughs> The community, this is one of the first times that I was amongst a community, actually did not want their, basically, in general, they were they were hesitant. They were very leery of the park and my association mm-hmm. with the park, what I was going to do with the materials, whether mm-hmm. or not they wanted to be in uh, conversation, in that, in that conversation at that time. And so uh, it became... Uh, because they had issues with land, land management, resources to do with land. Um, the park, uh, I don't know if you, if anyone knows that the U.S. Virgin Islands and St. John, mo- about 90, 80 to 90 percent of the uh, land areas is a park. <laughs> so the National Park right. takes up most of the island, although there were communities that have been there longer than the park and, and had other associations, which is part of the problem, you know, part of the issue. The tension right. is that how did the park acquire that land? Uh, all the stipulations around land use now that the park, now that it is a national park, of course, there are things you can and cannot do. Uh, issues of access, issues of you know fishing rights, uh, issues of um, uh, collecting resources off the natural environment, uh, t- picking food, uh, fruit or whatever, different kinds of things that people were doing with the land, but mostly with waterway usage. Uh, and so, and, and then the acquisition of the land for the park. So people were very concerned. They wanted their history and uh, they wanted their information known. They wanted their relationships to, uh, to the land known, not their relationship to the park. You know, they wanted their more their information about who they were, and uh, their community affiliations are not necessarily uh, in conversation with the park. So I actually had somewhat a parallel uh, conversations going on. Um, I was, uh, I had to use, rely uh, a little bit more on my university in ethnography and cultural anthropology credentials and um, ways of 
a working as a university person being not uh, that I was going to be, uh, I was trying to represent myself as a person like if that I was interested in their story, uh, regardless of um, whether or not uh, it coincided or connected or any way with the park. So I had to um, approach it that way and, and, and listen to those stories or listen to what they had to tell me as a person who just as a, a, a researcher, uh, who was interested in that cultural community, those cultural communities, um, and then see, uh, and this is the work I'm still doing, and still seeing uh, how I can put that uh, information that they're sharing and the perspectives they're sharing, their relationships to the land, their understanding of the the role of the Park Service uh, in conversation in and of itself, and then um, then also talk about uh, the Park Service's. Uh, questions that that I were set out to uh, that they wanted they wanted answered regarding the community and I think mm-hmm. it ended up the process itself became the uh, the glue the connection the fact that the part asked for that and I was in community uh, with them in conversation that people were in conversation placed the park in dialogue with the community that they had previously not been in dialogue with just the very fact of being out there in my, uh, with my students and um, uh, a colleague of mine who also worked on the project with me, just the fact that we were out there, uh, I think has, uh, you know, gave credibility and gave, gave uh, a better presence for, presence for the park. And it was a lesson learned, I think, for any of us who do this kind of um, uh, cultural resource management, heritage management, from a, a, a agency perspective, that the dialogue is important uh, before you actually, you know, even if you're not going for information, you have to be in community. And right. the fact that we were in community, we we're going, you know, like like ethnographers and cultural anthropologists, people like this do, you know, we're going to churches, we're going to um family um, parties and, and uh, gathering places where people are that have nothing necessarily to do with anything to do with work. We're just being with people where they are. And uh, uh, so in that way, it, it, it helped conversation, helped facilitate a very frank conversation. And also, like I said, it helped create a community. So, um, so the purpose of the, the the project again was really to to understand relationships between the communities that were longstanding communities prior to the park, and to understand um, how the park can better relate uh, to these communities. And that's that that really became more the issue uh, than uh, just simply going out and trying to uh, collect ethnographic information as a checkoff. Uh, relationship building became the biggest issue. Right. Right. And that's one thing I think a lot of people would probably be interested in hearing a little bit more about, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of ethnographers and archaeologists and land managers and people have only worked with, you know, formal tribal governments where there's a very yes. formal structure to the community with, um, you know, a tribal government. And if you're working with cultural resources, there's usually a cultural resources person that you're working with. And it's, um, I mean, not to say that that doesn't also have its own issues, but, (laughs) but it's, it's a lot more clear. 
Um, right. And I've I've worked with um, with both. You know, I've worked with American Indian communities, and then um, mostly Hispanic communities have been the, the other type of community that I've worked with. But it's just not as straightforward on how you approach that community. And so maybe if you could talk a little bit about your methods for mm-hmm. approaching the community, then that way, with if these people are going to, to be approaching other types of communities, they might have a little bit more of an idea of, of appropriate ways to do that. Yeah, and every every community, uh, every project of this sort that I've done, so I'm not saying that any of these particular ways will work in every situation or any, any other situation, but uh, the, the thing that will work is is that you have to learn learn it learn it from from the people uh, in in the community that you're working with, and first of all, it starts out with as anything. Uh, you're right. There's no there are no formal protocols, but you have to understand what those the way the community operates, right. um, and that, that ends up being um, the first and foremost. And everybody can probably relate to this one is. You know, you have to um, have respect and greet. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I find found, and I was telling my students that as soon as we are there, every action that we take was being um, noticed, uh, was being uh, conveyed to others. Whether or not we spoke, how we spoke to one person was going to impact whether or not we probably were going to be able to speak to other people. Whether or not yeah. we greeted whether or not we went in the store and 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 you know uh, like I said showed the appropriate respect and asking for something or uh, uh, calling people by their name or their titles and things like that all of that when whether you were actually formally in conver- in, in an interview mode or, or in uh, conversation to find out information or just casually uh, walking uh, around the community and I think the casual part is the first part that people start to pay attention how you're handling yourself, how you're dressing, how you're, again, um, basically uh, greeting and being with them. So that is important. Uh, don't underestimate that at all. And one yeah. person, uh, every everybody represents everybody else in the group. So, uh, you know, people, again, are watching you as a representative of the entire group. So you have to be very mindful of that. Right. And then I learned, um, you know, you may start to make uh, – connections, you have to start to learn the families or, or, or in my case, it was families that I, um, I started to learn who the families were. And I, I might've had some information from the background research from the park service uh, and uh, some of the people that they had as initial um, contact people for me. But beyond that, um, it was again, uh, individual conversations and learning uh, major families and, I did this too, also by going to church, <laughs> and in the community mm-hmm. that I work with, uh, these African descendant um, populations, uh, church, uh, the institutions like that, spiritual institutions, uh, spiritual um, practice, and, and uh, relig- religious institutions are very, very important. And so, um, one of the longest-standing, like Lutheran churches and uh, Moravian churches, are there in the Caribbean and particularly there in St. John and St. Thomas. So these, these institutions and uh, descendants of the, these um, 
African uh, communities, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans and, and just African descendants are members of these uh, churches, long, long standing institutions. And so participating in those going, talking to people there and making inroads by introducing myself and being introduced via those institutional um, places did a lot. You know, I would talk to start maybe start talking about the pastor or start talking about people who start talking to people who were the uh, leader in the choir or some position that they had in the church. And, you know, um, and visiting one 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 church, the Moravian church in the, in the St. Thomas Island was located on this very steep hill. And I didn't I got off the bus, one of those little buses and uh, cab cab slash bus, whatever it was, <laughs> for the people. And I, I walked up this hill, and I tell you, I was so tired. I was going up there. <laughs> and then when I got up there, and they were like, you, <laughs> they looked at me and said, you, you walked up there? And I was like, yeah. And I had to, I had to spend 10 minutes. I tell you, I couldn't even really actually answer their question because I, I was <laughs> Sat down, they were fanning me, whatever. I was just hot and tired, and, and but it was impressive to them. up there, <laughs> and that got me a lot. <laughs> yeah, I got and that that got a lot of respect because they said, "Well, no, no one really walks up that hill like you could you could have called or something." I just I. I didn't know. I didn't know how I was supposed to get up there, and I saw it up there, and I just went for it. And um, right. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like it does help when you give them like something, <laughs> like you identify yourself in some way. You know what I mean? <laughs> Which, like, for me, is easy because I'm like I have bright red hair, so I kind of like stand out. But you know what I mean? Like, if yeah. you, it does kind of help when people like have some yeah. sort of like. Way to place you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I became. I was a joke, but it was in a fun way. Yeah, you know, right. Teasing me because a, I was out of breath, but uh, and so I, just, <laughs> I, I definitely became known. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, we get a good way in the sense that 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 was one of the kind of breakthroughs because those folk also introduced me to you know more and more people, and mm-hmm. um, so I, I established um, a, a rapport. And that is the thing um, that I guess sets apart some of these formal um, practices uh, that we have with maybe the um, consultations and things like that. Um, Rapport, I mean, rapport is important everywhere, but I mean, rapport in this sense was extremely important because um, without it, you really can't get, you know, any further. And I I was relying on being connected um, to other people through the people that I, you know, through individuals. So uh, that was, you know, that was one of the the, the, the other things that I, um, that stood out in terms of my uh, methods. And then also I, I, I agreed to, to, I agreed to help, like anything I was recording, uh, anything that I was collecting, I would, um, I agreed to give back. Like I would send a tape yeah. back. And um, and things like that. And I always told people if they did decided they didn't want to do it or whatever, uh, right. that I I would I would stop or that they would have I I wouldn't use their material. And one lady t- one person tested me 
I don't know if he was testing, but I I was tested because uh, after I had come back, <laughs> that yeah. the decided that they didn't want any of their materials used or anything like that, and that they um, were were feeling tensions about my role between the Park Service and as a, as a researcher and things like that. So they they asked for the materials back, and I I, I wrote a nice letter and, and and explained my my position in terms of you know that I was not going to do anything with the materials that they didn't, that I hadn't previously agreed to, or they mm-hmm. hadn't agreed to, or if they want to change their mind, then we can, we can do it. No, we can, we can reverse anything. So I did send everything back and I, and the letter and, you know, really was saying that my reputation and my relationship was more important than any of the, anything to do with anything with the park service or my university, that my relationship and my reputation and the rapport that I had built was the more important thing. Right. And I'd rather have them feel good about it or feel, uh, uh, you know, have uh, confidence in me before I would worry about what I had to write or whatever. And I sent right. everything back and the lady decided, you know, after that, that wrote me back and called and really, really, I think it really, um, you know, I shared a lot about my own personal, you know, other things, other projects I had done and um, stuff about my family, just kind of, you know, linking myself to being a a person in her position that I would understand why she was asking. I felt no uh, harm uh, from her by her asking me back. I felt I wasn't going to change my relationship with her, that I was fine. And uh, so it changed. I mean, it, it, she agreed that that she really wanted her materials part of it and all those kinds of things. But it was a, it was a test in my standpoint of the relationship more than the work. And I think that's another thing that people, a lot of times in the work that I do with the communities and living communities that I do without these formal protocols, your reputation, your, um, uh, you as an individual is a, are the person that are making those, uh, that bridge, <laughs> And mm-hmm. so it's important to know that you, people are trusting in, in you <laughs> right. and honor that trust that people in those communities are placing on you by giving you their data, giving you access to their homes and their families and, and things that are important to them. And so I always, always recognize that as a, a precious, precious uh, gift and, right. and a responsibility. Uh, for me as a researcher. So those are the kinds of things I, I was trying to instill in students that you cannot take that that lightly and you cannot misuse or or, or be flippant about the use of the, the materials that people have shared with you because right. it means so much um, in, and, in and of itself, not just because it's a job. Right. Okay. We are already <laughs> at our Once second again. break point. <laughs> but we will be right back. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? 
Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so before we we move on from that last topic real quick, do you want to just share with everyone what you were just telling me over the break? Yeah. About, yeah. yeah. <laughs> over the break, we were talking about continuing on the U.S. Virgin Islands, and I was saying since the hurricane, uh, hurricanes last uh, year, that much of the research that I've done has become even more important in, in the sense that a lot of the places that I visited, a lot of the structures and things are no longer there. They're really, the island uh, suffered severe damage. Even the National Park Service site was down for quite a while. So um, it shows, again, more responsibility because a lot of the um, history, a lot of the materials that people gave to me in terms of books and documents and pictures, I, I have those in my possession. So the preservation of some of those things, um, one of the last kind of ethnographic uh, forays into those communities were, was some of the work that my students and I did in my colleagues. So um, the responsibility of what, as those islands and those communities rebuild and and get back on their feet, you know, I uh, the work that we've collected are the repositories. So that becomes the the ethnography uh, as uh, instrumental to the preservation, perhaps, in some of these communities because I may have the only. Uh, you know, re- remaining record or something that, you know, people entrusted me with at that time. So, um, you know, now I, have, I feel even more, a greater responsibility. And I was just thinking about recovery of cultural, actual intangible and uh, cultural resources um, and how to, to facilitate that uh, with communities that have been hit by hurricanes, because we always talk about the structures, but now I'm talking about um, you know, much of the information people shared about stories about, you know, where they're, um, the trees and the kinds of uh, things that they might have had at their, on their property, some of their graves and things like that may have moved or no longer, um, you know, accessible. So, um, you know, all that are things that I, at that point, at that snapshot in time, everything was there, solid, and now it's it, it's changed. And so... Uh, yeah. I'm I, I'm going to be going back in the near, uh, maybe this summer or next uh, or next fall, and and try to you know pick up a little bit or and see where we left off and w- what needs to be done uh, in that regard. Okay, so would you mind talking a little bit? I'm curious. You were talking about how you kind of had to approach this project more as a as a university researcher as an individual than in some ways as a, a park service contractor. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious how that is different, I imagine, from your experience running the, the Southeast Region Ethnography Program and um, what your role was there and, and what that was like. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I between uh, 2012 to 2016, I was the you know, uh, chief cultural anthropologist for the Southeast Region. And... That experience was fat, fantastic and 
and challenging uh, <laughs> coming out of a university setting and, and actually getting, I've done a lot of park service work in the past. And, and so there was not new working in park service on park service projects, but being, uh, I say within the, within the system more than I had been before gave me a whole nother understanding of how the um, different units work together because it's the cultural anthropology is the history it's museum people, it's the archaeologists, uh, and how all those different um, ways of dealing with community work together uh, was an eye-opener uh, for me. And uh, I, I think I was more surprised because it was more silos than I had thought. But I also was very impressed by the power that's possible within uh, uh, institutions such as the National Park Service, the um, the the way that you can get your information out uh, across a broad, broad uh, range of audiences and uh, the access I had to many communities and uh, by virtue of them being within the region I was operating in. So I had access to all, all the parks in the region and able to work with not only myself on a project, but work with others who were doing uh, ethnographic work. And so it was, I had a broader uh, breath, uh, breath of of information and, and insight, uh, and so that was a again it was a it was it was quite illuminating in terms of uh, the power of the park and, and the responsibility of the park um, and the gaps that are still there in terms of relationship building in terms of the types of stories um, um, and information that is conveyed by this machine called the National Park Service. Um, mm-hmm how they do that, how they, how that tool is used or can be used. And, you know, there, there is a lot of room to continue to uh, use that for, um, uh, to bring in more uh, variety of community, diversity of communities, of diversity of uh, types of stories. And that was actually the function that I had as the ethnographer and cultural anthropologist in that region was to bring in those kinds of stories and communities at the park had traditionally not engage with. And so, um, again, a lot of African descended communities, uh, uh, different types of religious communities, um, you know, maybe um, gender issues, gender community, different gendered communities, and, and things like that. And I also worked with tribal communities, which was the, the, the core of the National Park Service's uh, mission in many of their parks. So um, those communities were definitely represented. Um, but just bringing in a, a wider variety of, of ways that the park uh, is present in these communities uh, was an eye-opener, I think, for the park and, and, and for the communities in terms of actually you know, being able to be part of something in a different kind of way than they had been called on before. And actually, mm-hmm. they knowledge and to be asked for their stories that were going to be different kind of way as opposed to maybe working for the park service as laborers of some sort, you know, so this was a different kind of engagement that many of the communities had and to watch, uh, you know, the response and the, you know, that people had when they realized that, uh, you know, the the information that they had was really something valuable Mm -hmm. (laughs) going to be used uh, was, uh, was exciting. Yeah, and that's that's really the main reason why I wanted to have you on this podcast is is that there's a lot of groups that really get ignored in in cultural resources and heritage, and 
I think that um, your project in is it's it's archery. Is that what the town's called? Yes, Archery, Georgia. Yes, exactly. Right. Is a really interesting <laughs> example of, um, you know, usually one story getting told and another story getting more ignored. But I'll, I'll let you introduce that one. Um, yeah, yeah that, that's a good reason. Because I almost just went on into it at the end of yeah, my yeah. part of that conversation because you're right, it's a natural uh, kind of flow. And that was the 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 project I really had in mind as I was describing uh, people who uh, became a, a, a different kind of voice within the park service as a result of their participation in one of these ethnographic projects. And so I had the um, uh, pleasure and, and the honor really of being able to work in a community named Archery, Georgia, which was the boyhood um, home of uh, President Jimmy Carter. And he grew up there in the Archery, Georgia is a, a predominantly um, African-American and African-descendant community. And that is the community that um, in which uh, President Carter was raised. Now, the story we hear about archery and um, planes and all that really centers around, of course, President Jimmy Carter. But, right. Um, and, <laughs> and right now, <laughs> President Carter. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what I learned... <laughs> From, uh, well, President Carter is that, hey, you better be on your toes if you talk to President Carter. And I did have a chance to interview him. <laughs> tell you, it was, it, was, it was quite a surreal moment. That, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Like, how nervous do you get before oh, interviewing? Oh, <laughs> and you don't know in advance because it's the president. So they don't telegraph these things. So one day, all I knew is I was going to have an interview with him and it and this is the short version because getting the interview was a long, it took it was a process, <laughs> but when I finally was able to get audience, <laughs> yes. get, first couple of attempts was failed were failed attempts because he said I already answered all those questions in previous interviews. So do your homework. <laughs> so I, I had to go back to the drawing board, <laughs> and I did. Yeah. And um, and that meant doing my research, doing research in the community of archery, where and lo- finding out information from the descendant African descendant community and people who uh, lived and worked in that community all the time that President Carter grew up, and just learning different parts of stories: the story of the cemetery, story of people, families, things that were going on that President Carter himself did not know in the detail that the research was able to feel for me that people had shared, and so. You know, he lived near the community, but I found that it was the east, uh, one side of the county line and the other side. Uh, And he lived, depending on which side of the county line you were on, you had a different kind of perspective. And so that even learning that part was a a difference, you know, um, where people created this boundary that they understood was, um, you know, their safe haven. And then things went on and uh, life went on in that community. So I learned all kinds of stories about baseball games funeral uh, people who family the major families and what they were doing stores and uh, relationships church uh, the uh, St. Mark AME church there and how you know the relationships between people there so I was able then to come up with information and learn from the community and get coached by them on what to say when I met with President <laughs> Carter and so <laughs> that helped because that then I, I finally got audience with President Carter it was because <laughs> Actually, my I, I actually myself felt more confident because I mm-hmm. actually knew that we had 
you know, spent time really, you know, the elders had taken us to the, the cemetery and really went over, you know, graves that people didn't even know before that they weren't marked. And they started, um, you know, being able to re-establish um, uh, who, who was buried where and some of those places that they hadn't known. And just getting a lot of history about people and communities, again, like I said, baseball games and other kinds of forms of leisure, uh, ba- basketball and tennis. And uh, they had a, a university, a college over there on the, the side of the uh, archery that uh, predominantly African-American descended community lived. So they had all kinds of actual, uh, you know, life and history going on over there that, the, you know, the, the day-to-day operations of things that the president uh, didn't know. And I didn't know either until I talked to people. So I was able to, um, and when I create my students, you know, I created a, a nice map of how the, the community map the, the community themselves, you know, showing uh, places like juke joints or, you know, places where they went for fun and music and uh, places they had sold barbecue or had bar, you know, so they had a map. They helped us map all these kinds of places. It came alive, you know, and it was a map that he hadn't, you know, hadn't seen before. <laughs> And yeah. uh, and then the cemetery map. And when he started seeing the names and all those kinds of things on these maps, it started jogging his memory and it also informed him of some things. So that conversation would became more of a two way conversation. But it was uh, surreal and, and totally um, uh, <laughs> nerve wracking in the sense that yeah. they told me one day I was driving on the highway or driving around the community and the, the uh they called me on the phone and said, tomorrow you're interviewing the president. And I was like, Whoa. <laughs> I was like, no, what? And I called. I tried to call everybody in my family. Come quick. I'm coming. You could, and they, I couldn't. And, um, I could invite a couple of people. So my uncle and a couple of people that in my family also came to the interview. And my students were there. And so it was a whole protocol, a whole protocol. But um, <laughs> it, 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 was, it was great. And they said, if he doesn't, if you're not. Um, asking the right questions or he's not engaged, it'll be over in five minutes. <laughs> so I crammed all of my no pressure like, really up to the front. So <laughs> yeah. And it ended up that we ended up, you know, like I said, when I pulled out the maps and the things that the people had told him, some of the things that the community had prepped me and coached me on that, you know, it, we, it became a different kind of a rapport. If you can have a rapport with a president. Um, right. <laughs> No big deal. So, but all the while I was talking, I kept thinking, I'm talking to President Carter. Like this <laughs> on the top of my head. And I was like, am I being coherent? I, I looked at my students and they, everybody seemed okay. I was like, okay, I guess, I guess we're moving along. <laughs> yeah. Some kind of, a, some kind of sense. Uh, but it was, <laughs> it was, it was great. But what President Carter and the community told me was before the Carters, um, that uh, there was a Bishop Johnson who was to the community what President Carter is to the community today. Bishop Johnson was to the Carter family, that kind of person. That was a big name. That was a person that was, you know, the as a, a bishop, a black man who uh, was the bishop of the AME church and uh, the pastor of the church that's in archery, but then he became a, a bishop of the whole um, region there. So, um, he was the big name. And so President Carter looked up to him and everybody in the community did. So he was the President Carter of his day. So to, hear, to see that flipping of roles and you don't necessarily 
hear that when you hear the story of planes and archery and things like that was who, um, you know, President Carter's a role model role model was a who the who was prominent in that community and what families were prominent way before the Carters, you know. So that yeah. yeah so um, to flip to start to to orient the story and the relationship to the community from that the the perspective of the church and from the perspective of Bishop Johnson and all that he did within the community was a it was a shift uh, in relations in relationship. So. That was something I, I, I found very um, exciting and and help and was happy and to encourage by the community uh, people uh, to you know follow that that storyline and other kinds of things like I said what what different people in different churches and everything were doing how people were buried when uh, what are the burial practices food ways fishing you know just found out just everyday life. Uh, uh, from people in the community, so that was it. Was it was very uh, exciting to learn about uh, the area from that perspective. And again, there were tensions because not just the tension of, uh, of <laughs> being in relation with a president and trying to tell a story about his community, but that power dynamic isn't it a very important thing to understand? Is that you know if you have a negative story or a different kind of story, how you know, people were somewhat reluctant because you are, um, you know, uh, your the story, the the town is built on the Carter uh, brand at this point, and so you know, dealing with people's uh, relationship to President Carter in the present, you know, took a lot of managing too in terms of really some people didn't want to to talk one way or the other because again they didn't want to. Um, jeopardize perhaps their position, their positionality. So, right. so there are, you know, there are power, you know, definitely were issues of power and power dynamics, but I think on the whole, the fact that the community felt um, that they were able to, you know, tell a more comprehensive story uh, other than saying just a little town of archery where President Carter grew up that just to have some real uh, life stories and community um, uh perspective on that place called archery was, was a, a very important part of, um, of the work that I've done so far. I, I was a training ground for my students who really became engaged with the community. And, you know, we did all, like, as I always say, we did everything from barbecues to churches to, um, um, to, um, you know, going and helping people, um, you know, fine wells and, and the baseball field, like things that they had that way back in the woods that they knew that was there, but they didn't, hadn't had any um, reason to go maybe think about where those things were anymore because no one cared and we cared uh, yeah. where these things were located and how they meant and what they meant and how we got the mapping, you know, we were very concerned about getting the map. Um, from their perspective. So uh, it was, it was, it was quite, um, uh, a very engaging and, and enriching project from the from the method standpoint in terms of the actual doing the field work to to the actual knowledge that we we ourselves gathered and, and the pride that uh, the community got because I we made beautiful posters and left materials in the church and if you go to the churches there there their posters and the things the students put together with the history of the, the some of the maps and some of the the histories of the college that was there and everything are on these, some of these posters and online 
on the Heritage Lab site that it, people were very um, surprised that, that we would put together the little bit of pieces of information we got from each person into a, mm-hmm. a uh, you know, comprehensive and cohesive story. And I, I think they, they were quite um, pleasantly surprised, you know, what their information, how it was used and how it was presented. Okay. Um, I mean, I could talk about this topic, I'm sure, forever. <laughs> um, but there's a couple more things I want to make sure we get to real quick. Um, so lightning round of talking, talking about a couple of things. Um, you mentioned first the, the Heritage Research Lab. Could you roll briefly, give everyone a, an idea of what that is? Yeah, the... USF Heritage Research Lab was an initiative I put together starting in 2006, and it is a it's a, a resource for both the university and the community. It's, it's a way for uh, students to learn uh, the skills and practices of going and working in community and helping people uh, tell uh, untold stories or or document their uh, uh, family history and heritage and and it's a way for the community, again, to take advantage of the resources that the university has at its disposal. Uh, universities such as USF has a, a lot of uh, access to um, libraries and research tools and engines that uh, average person in community may not have or the wherewithal to perhaps navigate uh, those structures. So it's a it, we go out find projects that are important to people in the community and actually do apply projects as part of a class or, or project uh, effort where students get, get a, a chance to learn how to do research and also create a product or uh, a, a give a contribution that is directly uh, related to something the community, uh, community wanted. And one of our longstanding projects with Sulphur Springs Museum and uh, Heritage Center, we started working with that community from the very beginning when they had nothing, no, uh, in terms of no structure, no formal structure for a museum or any place to house it. My students came up with the help develop the website, um, logos, documented oral histories, uh, did a lot of the archival work and had just kept the repository uh, uh, in the lab until recently in the last year, the museum, the, it actually has a, a, a building. And uh, the county um, finally created an actual structure for the Museum and Heritage Center. So before it's a name, and now it's a name and a building and actually a, a you know, entity. So it sees something like that. Every year my classes have worked and students have worked doing little bits and pieces of that project. Um, it's always, you know, collecting more oral histories, documenting the life of a family who, uh, you know, donated the land so that there would actually be a museum one day. Uh, and things like that. So um, that has been an exciting, uh, one of the, 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 the anchor points of the lab was that project in Sulphur Springs Museum and Heritage Center. But every, every we have different projects, uh, multiple projects going on, and all the whole purpose is to, to link the um, enthusiasm in the, um, in the tools that are available at the re- a university in terms of student research power, and uh, library and all kinds of other technology with projects, real life projects uh, around heritage and preservation of history that the community wants done. So that's the lab does that. Yeah, that's amazing. (laughs) 
I, I mean, I've always heard really good things about about USF applied anthropology, and I, I can see why. <laughs> no, no, um, yeah, hands on is the main thing. Hands on experience, yes. Yeah. Um, and we'll include a link to the Heritage Research Lab, as well as um, there's also an article about the town that she was just talking about, Jimmy Carter's boyhood home and the, the African-American community there. Um, I'll include a link to that article. It's called More Than Scenery uh, as well in the in the show notes. And then, okay, so next, let's see. Let's talk about the the present past journal real quick. And it, like I told you before we got on, it's really too bad that I didn't know about this before because we just did an episode and it might release after this one. Um, but it would have been really perfect to have had you on. But anyway, <laughs> can you tell us about the, the present past journal? Yeah, thank you for asking about it. Uh, present past is a, is one of my latest uh, projects in which. Uh, it's a journal that's been published published since 2009. It was published out of the University uh, University College of London, and the focus is on all topics to do with cultural heritage, public archaeology, museum studies, public history, sociology, memory studies, and geography. So we're looking at heritage contemporarily and in the present and in the past, um, and all the issues associated with people doing heritage preservation work, memory. Uh, uh, memory work in communities and things like that. So we're looking at uh, the the challenges and and uh, you know the new directions that people are taking in, in terms of digital heritage and things like that. That's one of our uh, articles and things that we covered in the journal. Uh, the issues of digital heritage. Now uh, we did a special. We have a special issue running now where a special call for papers where we're reinvigorating. Uh, the journal trying to get more of uh, a vari- broader range of uh, uh, people to contribute. Again, it was at one point central, centrally located at the University College of London. And now that I'm the editor, uh, we are co-locating with the University of South Florida in Tampa. So we are, you know, shifting uh, some of the focus to include more uh, articles and things from uh, U.S. Uh, sites, but it's a totally international journal. But uh, it, we're you know partnering to make sure we uh, have a, and a more cultural presence. It had a heavy archaeological presence before uh, because it was run out of an archaeology um, kind of unit of the University College of London, and now um, my focus, since my specialty is cultural uh, heritage, we're you know again trying to make that a better balance between the archaeology and the uh, cultural heritage. So yeah, oh boy, do I feel you there? <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a, so we have a great board, uh, editorial board. So if you go out there and take a look, you want to contribute. Um, you know, the turnaround is pretty. You know, we try to get it, the articles in and out, and uh, uh, but the editorial board is quite impressive, uh, and uh, in a, and you'll see some of the recent articles that are out there. They're quite interesting. Awesome. Yeah. And we can include a link to that as well. And if you have a, a special call for papers or anything, let me know and I can put that in the show notes as well. Okay. And then, okay. Um, I think the last thing is your book. 
So your book is Speaking for the Enslaved, Heritage Interpretation at Antebellum Plantation Sites, and it's through the Rutledge Press. So could you tell everyone a, a little bit about that? Yeah, the Speaking for the Enslaved is pretty much uh, a culmination of much of the uh, work that I was doing when I mentioned about my dissertation uh, work in the Gullah Geechee communities, but it looks at many of the plantations uh, up and down the Southeast Corridor where I um, uh, spent time doing research, Clingsy Plantation, Jahasi Island, um, what else is in there? Uh, Mount Pleasant, um, Sneaf Farm Plantations there, and then Michelle Obama's uh, Brinfield Plantation where it was her ancestral uh, descendants are, are from that plantation. And so it, that's all that's featured uh, in the in the book. And again, it looks at um, a more com- the complexity of plantation spaces. And each place has its own, again, you'll see its own unique story, its own unique perspective and enters into uh, and complicates the story in a different way. Uh, hmm. and so, so I give examples in each of those plantations and how they complicate things uh, by bringing forth uh, information that has not uh, previously, previously been talked about. Uh, particularly the Kingsley Plantation looks at the dynamics, the gender dynamics of a black woman who actually owned an uh, enslaved uh, African woman who actually you know, was a mistress to the plantation owner, but uh, their partnership uh, if you want to call it that, produced. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so that's a whole complex story. But <laughs> right away, in that little snippet, it's a lot. I can't even distill it down to <laughs> even say the relationship already talks about some of the issues that are raised in the book. How do you deal with that? Uh, those kinds of complications of um, mistress plantation owner relationships resulting in, um, uh, you know, um, uh, Anna Kingsley being a, a businesswoman herself and managing uh, plantation and actually owning enslaved people herself. So, oh. so it's very that's a very com very complex story and it uh, unfolds uh, to the present. All of my stories link back to the present. All right, so that's another interesting thing because most stories people go back and they talk about what those plantations were like in the past, but my mm-hmm. segue is usually from what's happening now. What are the tensions now? Uh, entering into that, that conversation and then go then go back in history and come back forward. So they're not, you know, old <laughs> stories. They're they're very contemporary. Uh, again, uh, the one with Michelle Obama is very contemporary because it brings in her conversation, and then we go back to see what the history of that plantation site was like. But first of all, the complicated dialogue about her own relationship with that plantation history is part of the thing that I talk about. So, um, so the, yeah, the book is, uh, it's, it's, it's a culmination of much of the work I've done on plantation communities up until, um, uh, 2011 or so. So go out and get it. <laughs> and yeah. say, uh, you know, cause like I said, it, it's, I try to make it, uh, linked to the present. So that's the, right. that's the key to it. And I'm working on a new book with Rutledge Press too. Um, yes. The other side of leisure. So that's one that hopefully be coming out at the end of the year. The first, well, probably not until 2019 by the time it all, everything unfolds, but it's looking at heritage, uh, race and leisure. So again, in a lot of these national park sites, I'm looking at the other side. What are the stories about uh, interactions with communities, um, uh, native populations, 
descendants of enslaved Africans, other people whose stories are not in relationships with the park were very tenuous. Actually, they were excluded half the time mm-hmm. from the park. But now we're talking about bringing people back in, trying to invite them back in. But what are these complicated stories around these park sites and the right. idea of leisure and how people experience leisure in national parks? So that's where I'm going with that um, particular book. Uh, you are just going to have to let me know when that comes out. And I apparently know. we're going to have to do another podcast. <laughs> Because this was just not enough time. (laughs) Yeah. And one thing that you pointed out before we even got, before we even started recording that I do want to include, because I thought it was an important distinction was I was, I mentioned, um, I called them slave communities. And, and you mentioned, um, that the word is it's an enslaved community as opposed to a slave community. And I thought that was a really interesting and important distinction that I had never really thought about before, but I probably really should have because, um, you know, like as, as regular listeners already know, I'm, I'm Jewish. And one of the stories that I've heard a lot is it was talking about some people in a concentration camp and there's a prayer that's, um, basically like, thank you God for not making me a slave. Mm. And um, the, they they went to their rabbi and they asked him, you know, should we still be be saying this prayer? Because you know, obviously, mm-hmm. we're slaves. Mm-hmm. And um, the rabbi said, basically, like now of all times, we need to say this prayer because we need to remember, basically, that like this is not who we are. Mm-hmm. Basically, right. exactly, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be an enslaved person, but it's that's not your identity. Exactly. That's not what you chose. Right. Um, and that's, so I thought that that was an important, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, I was just going to, I'm just agreeing with everything you're saying, is that that's the definite uh, distinction in the relationship that uh, it's the condition uh, that was imposed and so right. I want to make sure people don't continue to uh, create, uh, make something smaller, make people smaller by uh, continuing to to call call them by the name that was not something they chose. Right, right, exactly. And something that had never crossed my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so no, I'm glad right. that you. Yeah. So that's that. So that's the name of the book. Speaking for the enslaved was a conscious use of that word. In right. And. Uh, for that very purpose. And in the book, it's a, it's a discussion, too, about just what we're talking about, why I chose it to say it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, so last thing before we go, I just want to mention that you also did an oral history interview. So basically a, a podcast interview for the Society of Black Archaeologists. And I'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. There's lots of different interviews with different black archaeologists on there. And it looks like a really amazing resource. So if anyone's uh, trying to get a little bit more diversity in their their podcast listening, that would be a great place to go. And yeah, did you have anything else that you wanted to add? Uh, no, I just other than the fact that my work is is multidisciplinary. And so I, as a cultural anthropologist, I am totally always engaged with archaeologists, museum people, uh, geographers, uh, historians, and uh, oral his- oral historians, and 
I've been invited to conferences uh, all of all those different disciplines. And every space I operate in, uh, we have good conversation. And, um, you know, I think that's the key. The open dialogue is, is, is all the tools that each different discipline brings together helps um, tell you know, these stories in a, a broader way and in more complexity. So I, I welcome working with everyone and every discipline um, to help answer and, and preserve and, and discuss these stories. All right. Well, sadly, we, we have to wrap this up. Um, so thank you again so much for, for coming on and, and talking to us about all of this today. Oh, thank you so much, Jessica, for having me. And I'm, I look forward to continued dialogue in some other time. So bye yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm super excited to hear, <laughs> to, to read this next book. Um, <laughs> definitely we'll have to talk more at that point. Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash heritage voices please subscribe to the show on itunes stitcher or the google music store also if you like the show please share with your friends or write us a review if you have any questions comments or show suggestions please reach out to me at jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org or you can find me on Facebook through Living Heritage Anthropology or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, thank you to Lyle Blanqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. What's spring like in Park City, Utah? Imagine waking up on a bluebird day to ski the greatest snow on earth at two world-class resorts, Park City Mountain and Deer Valley. Exploring miles of wide-open spaces by snowshoe or cross-country skis. Wandering our historic Main Street with its opera ski scene and award-winning restaurants. When you love it like we love it, Park City, Utah will always be winter's favorite town. Join the experience at visitparkcity.com. Oh, 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 O'Reilly! You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.